Welcome to the Designated Drinker Show, the podcast that's visiting the bar on craft cocktails. I am your host, Louise Sullison. With me, as always, is my <laughs> very, very talented friend who is a rebel and a queen, the mixtress DC Gina. <laughs> I, I know rebels, right? I think queen sometimes. I'm like the scholarly maid, but that's fine. That's completely fine. We'll go with it. So, Gina, I have a question for you. Have you ever heard of the House of Swan? So doing a little research for the show, I found out that it was right here in Washington, D.C. during the 1880s and 1890s. And uh, it was William Dorsey Swan. Um, he was a man born into slavery in Hancock, Maryland. Um, not too too far from you, um, where you live now. But I Hancock, I know that is. Oh, yeah, no, no. yeah. It's, it's a skinny part of Maryland, apparently. I had to look it up, too. Um, and he's the first known and self-proclaimed drag queen in the United States. Well, that's according to my research. According to my research. Um, and he, he organized series of balls, is what they would call them. Um, and it was for, and I'm doing this in air quotes, even though our listeners can't see that. It's rebel drag queens known as the House of Swan. I love that. Yeah. And they would um, secretly gather to dance and socialize, and they would um, come out in their finest satin and silk dresses. I would love to be there. I know. Also, yeah. why not? Wearing <laughs> satin and silk dresses is awesome. Although in Washington in uh, July, maybe not. Oof. I mean, I don't think it was as hot as it is now based on, like, climate control, like change. Climate change. Possibly, possibly. Also, I think silk is good any time of year, so. Yeah, yeah. It is a nice, it is, you know, you're right. Very nice. You have a parasol. <laughs> so, um, so William was far more than just a dance organizer. He was an activist. Um, as a black gay man, he was bold and outspoken. Um, he always resisted arrest, which happened quite a few times because of the balls, but he was like, fuck it, we're going to do it. Um, and he, the other really cool thing is he never revealed any of his party goers, any of their identities, because obviously that would have been illegal during the time, unfortunately. But all that he did, all that William did, it paved the way for future drag queens and gay men of color. I think for anyone, everyone, really. Um, his legal efforts sparked conversations, and his actions may have been um, the first acts of LGBTQ activism, obviously, in the United States. Um, and no one can doubt that he, his actions and efforts obviously helped lay the foundation for the LGBTQIA plus rights movement as we see it today. So um, all I have to do is here's to you, William Dorsey yes, Swan. Yes. Cheers, cheers to that cheers, rebel cheers. queen. Yes. So, speaking of those who've changed the world for the better through drag, please welcome our next designated drinker. This is amazing. Um, I can't believe he's joining us. Um, he is the co-founder of World of Wonder and one of the driving forces behind the global phenomena that is known as RuPaul's Drag Race. He is none other than Fenton Bailey. Welcome to the show, Fenton. Hi, thanks for having me. I love that introduction. That's so true. You know, we stand on the shoulders of others, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Which also speaks to the fact that every do every good deed we do now, we have no idea what the ripple effect may be. Mm. So, um, and speaking of ripple effect, I would say that you definitely fall into that category. Um, before we get there, though, because there's so much to talk about, all the amazing things that you've done, I would love for you to tell our listeners um, what is World of Wonder and um, what was the catalyst for all that? 
World of Wonder is, um, you know, I guess we're a production company. I mean, um, but we're sort of, I, I suppose we'd say more like a media company. Um, and myself, uh, founded by myself and Randy Barbado, who we met, uh, we met in film school in 1900. Just a couple of days ago, right? Right, Just, a long yeah. time ago, a, life, a lifetime ago. And um, so Randy and I started World of Wonder. And um, what was the catalyst for it? I think it was like coming out of film school, uh, Hollywood was just a very hard place to get into. Um, and we were sort of, at the time, also fascinated by this thing called public access, which is like in different communities around the States, people who ran the cable channels, they had to provide to the community one or two channels for people to make whatever show they wanted to make. And as a result, there was this incredible creative outpouring of people it was very punk they were making do-it-yourself shows with you know with, with no money no resources and yet these shows were so inventive and different to anything on television and we were just very inspired by that so that was really the beginning of world of wonder that's amazing and that was our first series we made for channel four in the uk um and it was clips from it was clips from all these um public access shows. Uh, and it became a huge hit, very cult viewing. And funny enough, Rue, RuPaul, was involved in that show with us. He was a, one of the presenters of the show. Um, oh, so really? we've been working together for a very long time. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how that happened. Oh, interesting. Uh, I, I'm so anxious to get into the RuPaul, and I know you're biting your nails, Gina, but I want to do some a little, I want to I want to stay in this space just a little bit, because obviously you somehow made your way across the pond, because um, I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm guessing that that uh, accent, it's not from Mississippi. It's completely <laughs> fake. I'm uh, I'm not a drag queen, but my I am a drag vocal artiste who, <laughs> no, I imagine, I, yeah, I'm a British, originally British, yeah. Yeah, and you and how did you get here to the US? Um, what made you cross that pond? You know, I was I did university, I read English, which isn't a very useful thing to read in terms of what are you gonna do with your life? <laughs> and I really had no idea, but a friend told me about this um this amazing scholarship that he told me I had no chance of getting. And he said he had no chance of getting it. I mean, no one had a chance of getting it because it was this fund that if you got one it paid for you to come to the states and live in the states for two years and study whatever you want wherever you want it was like That's amazing a dream thing and Absolutely. i got it as like, amazing I, I i to this day i cannot i cannot explain how honestly and um I'm, I'm very unfortunately my friend did not get it so that was a little bit stressful because oh. um, he turned me on to it and yeah. um, so I you know lucky bastard that I am I managed to come to film school um, and um, that's where I met Randy like awesome. day one. Oh, really mm -hmm. that's incredible what a stroke of like luck that or you know what actually whatever you wrote is what got you there do you know what I mean like it was lucky he told you and and amazing who you are, right? So I feel like that's how 
those things happen. It's like your college application, right? Yeah. You write a college yeah. application, and not everyone gets accepted to all those schools, even though you're a 4.0 student, 4.5.0 yeah. student. Whatever it is, yeah. But there's something in that essay that you say about yourself. Yeah. You know what? I mean, I, I, I love... I would love to take credit and say, yes, I wrote something brilliant, but <laughs> I have no idea. And it was a very intimidating <laughs> panel of people. I had to go to London to be interviewed by this panel. I was shit scared. I hardly remember the interview. It was so terrifying. Um, but I do remember one question. They said, do you think there's such a thing as visual literacy? Oh. And that question, I w because... I was like, absolutely, there's a visual literacy. And I went off about TV and media and how it's set to explode. And and I think I think maybe that was the thing that got it for me was That's that. Awesome. Wow. Because it was a very academic uh, opportunity. And it was, I was the only sort of one going for sort of visual artsy fartsy nonsense <laughs> like film school. <laughs> <laughs> like these were people who were going to be doctors yeah. and, and um, engineers. And, and I was a flibbity gibbet wanting to go to film school. I'm also going to be adopting flibbity gibbet into my everyday vernacular. Yeah, you should. I went, yeah, tried to work it Please in. With, with, a long, with a terrible Long Island accent. They're going to be like, what did she say? <laughs> so um, obviously that panel of folks had saw a brilliant star in there because let's let's be honest now Gina I don't know if you realize Fenton has uh, produced and directed so many award-winning films and documentaries I'm just going to name a few um, Catch and Kill, The Podcast Tapes of Rowan Farrow, Small Town News, um, The Eyes of Tammy Faye which we both know I was love. just was uh yeah, you're seeing it again now because it's been yeah. used as, you know. But I love. But it, right in the beginning, it put, has his name on it. I was like, oh, I know him, sort of. <laughs> um, Stonewall Out Loud, um, Maplethorpe, Look at All the Pictures, which I absolutely love. Inside Deep Throat, um, which maybe we should watch tonight um, separately, but let's do it. Uh, <laughs> wishful Drinking, which sounds like what we should do. In Inside Deep Throat, Wishful Thinking, sorry. Uh, Monica in Black and White, and you also, and, and he also produced and directed the movie Mendez Blood Brothers, which we all know because that happened yeah. during our lifetime. Yes. Um, so did Monica. Yes, and Monica. And, in you know, D.C., where we are. Exactly. Do you know when um, they used to say I looked a lot like Monica? And I'm like, oh, yeah, if you just flip my hair up and put a little blue uh, beret on and me, I'm like the Mexican it. version of Monica yeah. Lewinsky. <laughs> Monica on fucking vacation. <laughs> when I lived in Germany. When I was living in Germany, never saw the sun. Uh, <laughs> so my question to you, um, Fenton, is how do you choose what storylines to develop? I mean, this is such a vast, uh, like when I read them, I did this on purpose because they're so different. Mm. The, the, the content, the, the stories behind them. How do you choose it? I know. They are kind of different, aren't they? Yeah, they, they all have some, you know, a lot of the stories come to us, like people come and say, what, what about this? What about that? And um, I think it's like, is one is is there a story there? Of course, there's got to be a story. But also, I think uh, the stories that kind of appeal to us are ones where maybe the public already think they know what the story is. You know, um, someone like Tammy Faye was sort of ridiculed and mocked and was a, a figure of fun, and yet you know we sort of sense there was a very different story there. And I think 
we've always been interested in stories also that people think are very marginal or perhaps not worth not worth telling you know um those are the sorts of stories that entice us even you know even the recently the catch and kill was so fascinating because although ronan had had written up you know he broke the uh, the, the the especially the rape and uh, an assault piece of the story in the new yorker magazine and then he wrote a book and then he did a podcast it's like well what can you possibly add there but interestingly the when you see the victims and you hear their stories, seeing being able to put a, a face to those articles that he wrote was a huge additional dimension and really powerful. And, and the story of how he overcame all these odds to bring that story to light, you know, where many journalists had failed, uh, had attempted to do it uh, over the years previously and had, had not been able to do so. So it's always something, uh, there's always got to be a story that, you know, maybe the public think they know what the story is, but they don't. You know, like Monica. I mean, she was a very, she, again, a, a very ridiculed yeah. and shamed figure who actually was incredibly smart and had great integrity. Yeah. You know, um, she wouldn't wear a wire against the president, you know. And that that whole investigation was such a scandal in terms of the corruption and lack of just the sort of yeah. oh just you know the star report just makes my stomach turn to this day i mean just the, the sort of vile republican white male misogynistic all that bullshit yep. uh which is you know monica called it out then um and of course she was only mocked and attacked for it but we've seen in the in the subsequent years, that this toxicity has just spread and is so, so much in the foreground of our national life. It is. Know? Well, she was. I mean, how else could you explain Trump? Yeah. Oh, good lord! Trump. I, I mean, can't wait like... to see the. I can't wait to watch what you do with that. I know. One. What are you going <laughs> to do with that? Because that's <laughs> fucked up in itself, right there. Well, I mean, with yeah, the Monica Lewinsky piece, you know, it's the Monica Lewinsky mm. scandal. It's she was demonized in that whole thing, and we, if mm. we backtrack, she was a pretty young girl. I mean, she's a woman, but she was very young, and I don't think she was naive into what she was doing, but. There were two people in that. And don't get me wrong, I voted for Bill Clinton and I've met up the man and I and I I hold him in high esteem because of what he did in the office. What that happened there is just but the way she was demonized through the media, um, it's just Right. I think it's like people who get judged in who are judged publicly, um, you know. And the Menendez brothers, you know, when their trial happened, they were judged, you know, as being spoiled rich brats. Um and they weren't that the story they told about their father abusing them was not believed. They were just ridiculed. And yet now we know so much more about that kind of domestic sexual abuse. It's it's far more common than one would have ever thought. I mean, it was unimaginable then. Like no one believed it. They're like, that, that is, how can you, your father is raping you? How can that for a second be possible? Yeah. You know? And they were very publicly judged. I'm not saying that they should have killed their parents. Obviously, you know, it's a grave crime. But I do think that the the I do think that this I wish I wish they had been believed because I think they were telling the truth. For me, this is like the art of finding the story within a story. Hmm. That's or, amazing. Or giving or shedding some serious light on really really fucked up. To sorry, really topics that are just nobody wants to talk about. 
Nobody wants to to admit that our government is severely corrupted. And as much as we're like, we live in a free country and we can do whatever we want and whatever and talk about like just to cover up and cover up or or the fact that some parent is raping their children. Nobody wants to talk about it. They want to talk about like Mm -hmm. fucking, you know, tea and going out to lunch and brunch and having fun. You know what I mean? I give you credit. I think that what you do is, it's hard. And, you know, you're taking a big risk on like what the public might say because you've, you know, exposed, but you also give a voice to a lot of victims that don't have any way to. No platform. A platform to say it, you know, just to be like, you know, this really happened. And yes, I went, this is what happened to me for it, you know? Yep. I don't know. But I give you, I mean, especially to be able to tell it to those that don't read because there's a lot of articles that come out in like New York Times or magazines or whatever. Or just the mass media. And it it is what's easy to digest. And 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 Fenton, I think you you touched on this, is that... um, being able to take the long, the, that long road to uncover these things and really discover and not just take that first piece um, right off the bat and run with it. That, there's a lot to be said about that and the way our media works and journalism as a whole, the amount of time it takes you to actually uncover these, to my point, story inside of a story, that there's another uh, point of view. Well, I th- I think maybe it's got something to do with being gay because I think as you know, as as gay people, we've for years been you you grow up quite aware of your marginal status and of your of being sort of slightly on the outside of things, and I think in some sense of of feeling somewhat unfairly judged, you sure. know, and and so um, I think that that sort of given us a a sensitivity to other people who might have been unfairly judged, um, someone like, you know, like Tammy Faye or or Monica. I remember, funnily enough, one of the first things we ever, ever did was um, a piece about Michael Milken on Wall Street in the 80s. He was the junk bond um, person who ended up going to prison. And, and we had this feeling that, you know, Rudolph Giuliani was, was the prosecuting attorney and he was very leading this crusade against Wall Street and he was sort of the hero of the hour. And I just remember thinking, this guy's a bully. You know, he's kind of creepy. Not not Milken, yeah. Giuliani. Yeah. And of course, no one would hear it. And then, and then, of course, when 9-11 happened, he was the uh. hero of 9-11. But now, of course, you know, we have, with the benefit of hindsight, we see what a, what a, what a creepy, corrupt, nasty... Swine. Just what a terrible person he is. Yeah. And he was always that person. You yeah. know, and so I think I think often public judgment gets it wrong. You know, um, maybe it's because it's a rush to judgment, or maybe it's not getting into enough detail, whatever, or maybe it's a lack of compassion. But I, I just think so often we're seeing now that so many stories of the '90s and '80s, and and we we that initial judgment is wrong. Yeah. I, how Harvey Weinstein got away with it for so long is kind of shocking. But the know? truth is, is he's not, he's one of many. You know, he's yeah, not so anomaly. True. He is, yeah. um, it, I think that's the other thing is that we get numb to it to some degree mm-hmm. because it's the norm mm-hmm. that we know. And I think um, to your part, Gina, or to your point, you don't want to talk about that. You know, no. there, there's a certain amount of uh, resistance to talk about the ugly um, because it's hard. We well, don't want to say the wrong thing, so therefore you avoid it. 
possible. And I think that that's the problem. I think that a problem with our country and what will eventually happen to all of us is that we just don't talk about it. I think that society is it's society. It's some societies, but some societies are not like that. Some societies are wide open and like do say all the wrong things and they do live in a uh, slightly socialist society, but you know, not technically, but they do. And like some, some people have the ability to say what they want to say at all costs. And like, yeah. you know, I, I don't know. And I think, you know, I think Benton, I think when you just said something about like, um, you know, you might be have like a different viewpoint because you are gay and like you, you know, being part of something that didn't, you said, I don't want to paraphrase for you, but what, but what is interesting, what you said about that whole thing is that being enlightened to people's underlying pain or story is very interesting because those that haven't felt not part of or don't belong Heard. or something to a, to a bigger um, culture to you know society to whatever to the world is very is very interesting to me to like that's how you get like clued into a different feeling or how other people could feel and I mean I would call it enlightenment instead of you know like you know maybe you, maybe you can you know you have ability you're you're emotionally able to see more feel more and they therefore give you a better insight into something. Just naturally. You call him a superhero. Yes, yes. Fenton is Fenton, a superhero. Fenton, you're a superhero. Forget it. Change it up. And I think it's, I, I mean, right, where's my, where's my gate? No, that's very nice. But I think also that um, the weird thing is that, um, I, I mean, that was just an idea that maybe, you know, we feel like outsiders. But I do think that oh, over the course of the years, people have said, oh, well, you know, with Drag Race, did you ever have any idea how big it would become. And of course, the answer to that is no. There was no idea. But thinking about it, I think that, you know, what the gay community has is this sense of outsiderness. And that actually, that sense is relatable to everybody because everybody feels like an outsider. And so the weird thing is that the the very thing that makes you feel marginal is actually the thing you have in common with everybody. And that's why I think, you know, this has been a a period in which we've seen, it's been a golden age, you know, since Stonewall, certainly for LGBTQ plus content and voices, not because it is a tribe that is speaking only to their own, but because their experience is universally relatable to everybody's experience. And ultimately everybody lives in a closet of some kind, you know, Mm -hmm. of of hiding parts of themselves from public expectations or morals or whatever it is, you know? 100%. And this uh, recently with a lot of our guests, that's a big, that's a big theme of what we're talking about is that you're starting to see, not theme, but uh, where the conversations er come to is that we start, the more we talk about our, um, these parts that we, your closeted parts, you actually Mm. realize that you are more alike than you are different. And, uh, you know, Mm. when we start talking, we start seeing each other as human, I think is what it is. And we can share vulnerability we can understand yours which gives us a greater sense of understanding one another hmm. i hope no i yeah. hope yeah we still got a ways to go obviously <laughs> yeah. you know <laughs> so uh gina i don't know if you have any tips or tricks on how to make that happen but i bet you have a tip or trick on uh, how to make a cocktail i do i have it set up for the next cocktail so um you know oh here we go 
So our tip today is a really uh, fun one. It is berry season, everybody, and I'm sure you're all familiar with this little container that you get at the grocery store. Well, are you familiar with the fact that sometimes you might not be using the right berry that's in there or is ripe? So I want to just kind of go through this, and it's a quick little tutorial. These berries, and they may all look the same to you, are not quite the same, right? This one's a little bit mushy. This one is a little bit dark. This one's still a little bit light, but then it's dark on the side. Um, and by I mean light, I mean the seeds, right? When you're making a cocktail, these pretty ones are great for garnish. Let's put them over here. But it's these mushy ones, these gushy ones, the ones where the seeds turn black that are the ones you want to use because they are so sweet and delicious and ready to go. So here's your tip. If the seeds are really yellow, keep them for a garnish. If the seeds are turning black and dark, you use them in the drink. Well, it smells delicious. It does. It smells it's like it's so and, pretty. And there's no sugar added. So nice. why add sugar? Don't need the pulp. Throw it all in the cocktail. It's great. Well, you know, I'm sweet enough as it is. That is, right? Nah. <laughs> so where are they going to go to get this tips and tricks, Gina? You're going to go to designateddrinker.show for the tips, tricks, and how-tos of our show today. I, can I just say, though, like, if you don't want to be, like, making the whole thing yourself, you can always go and get a House of Love cocktail. Yes. So we're going to hold that thought, though, Fenton. Our listeners are going to come back to part two to get exactly that. So... This brings us to the end of part one with Fenton Bailey, the co-founder of World of Wonder. Um, but if, again, you're anything like me or Gina, you know that one round of Fenton is never enough. Um, so make sure you go top off that cocktail and uh, get ready to check out part two of this episode as we continue our boozy banter while uh, Gina's going to share her delicious Fenton-inspired cocktail recipe. Let's hurry back. The Designated Drinker Show is produced by Missing Link, a podcast media company that is dedicated to connecting people to intelligent, engaging, and informative content. Also in the Missing Link lineup of podcasts is Roger That, a podcast dedicated to guiding you through the haze of dementia, led by skilled caregivers Bobby and Mike Carducci. Now, if you're looking for a whole new way to enjoy the theater, check out Between Acts, an immersive audio theater podcast experience. Each episode takes you on a spellbinding journey through the works of newfound playwrights, from dramas to comedies and everything in between. Find Missing Link's League of Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Please don't forget to subscribe, download, and review the shows. Your review helps our shows reach new audiences. To find out more about Missing Link, visit missinglink.company. That's missinglink.company.